Hello there. Welcome to the fourth episode of the System Science and Public Health podcast series. I'm your host, Petra Meyer. I'm a professor of public health at the MRCCSO, Social and Public Health Sciences Unit at the University of Glasgow. And I'm also a director of the Cypher Consortium. Cypher is a collaboration between seven universities and three government partners that aims to develop system science evidence to support health and well-being in all policy. In this podcast series, I'm speaking to scientists, policymakers, and practitioners who work in this space. Joining us via Zoom today is Dr. Patricia Morbury. Patty is an interdisciplinary scientist who has applied systems, modeling, and simulation methods in many policy and intervention areas, including tobacco policy, obesity, and uptake of cancer screening. Welcome, Patty. Hi, Petra. Thank you. What excites you most about working in system science and how did you end up in this area of research? What excites me most about system science is the ability to see the big picture and all the pieces of the big picture simultaneously and how they, they work dynamically over time um, in the way that you can't get with many other methods. Um, how did I get started? I think it was partly accident and partly my constitution. I've always been a person that has tried to see the big picture and how all the pieces fit together at the same time. So maybe I was a natural born systems thinker, but this was um, not um, cultivated in me in a way uh, because the system that we have of training people um, at least at the time that I was coming through graduate school and undergraduate and before that was all about the reductionist approach. And so I really struggled um, because I was always trying to see the complexity and study the complexity. And I was always told to make it simpler. Um, the, the fortuitous part of this was that I was working at the um, National Cancer Institute in the tobacco control research branch. And we had a leader there, Scott Lyshow, who had been interested in um, fighting at the time the war on tobacco. So when he thought of it as the war on tobacco, he looked at the Department of Defense literature to see what kind of cutting edge things they were doing. And they were doing, um, there were a couple of publications that came out by David Al Alberts and it was uh, Network, Network Centric Warfare and a few other things that got him thinking about how to um, change things through through a systems lens. So that kind of gave me the bug, if you will. And then I um, shortly thereafter got a job at the Office of Behavioral and Social Sciences Research within the National Institutes of Health. And the new director there um, was also from Tobacco Control and familiar with um, Scott Lyshow. His name was David Abrams. And he said, let's figure out what this systems thinking, that's what they were calling it at the time is, and um, figure out what other fields are doing. Go off to um, any field that's using different methods and bring them back and see if we can use them here in behavioral and social science. So that's an opportunity for me. So that's how I got started and I'm self-taught. So I just started interviewing people. I went to different conferences like the um, Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence and other kinds of meetings, system dynamics society meeting. Um, and I tried to find as many people as I could, including uh, Bobby Milstein, who was then at the CDC. He was getting his own degree, uh, PhD, in system science, but it wasn't called that. He was going somewhere where he could put together his own program of work. And so he was studying this very methodically um, and helped me a, a good deal by sharing what he was learning with me. Together, we paved a path. 
So you, you mentioned that at the time uh, people refer to systems thinking quite a lot. And I wondered, how do you see the relationship now between the more qualitative system thinking approaches and maybe the more computational simulation and, and modeling? I think I see the two as very much intertwined. I see the qualitative systems thinking is super valuable, getting people together, stakeholders from various perspectives to um, share various perspectives can be super enlightening. We did a stakeholder meeting here about um, a year and a half ago, um, members of the healthcare system um, from different perspectives, different disciplines, clinicians, people from the healthcare insurance plan, people that um, have um, personal contact with the, over the phone with, with patients and in um, dealing with patients that aren't physicians necessarily, but also physicians. And because we had such a variety of folks from across the healthcare system, in our case, it was related to molecular cancer screening, they all shared with each other and learned so much at that meeting, which was really just to describe their perspective and how it related to the other people's perspective on the problem. So that qualitative piece is hugely helpful. Um, by itself. And I got a lot of compliments just after that one meeting. However, it's also very useful in helping construct a more quantitative computational model. It helps you figure out what the model um, scope is going to be and what you want to put in the model, what you want to not put in the model, what you need to put in the model, things that you may have thought were important may not be as important. Um, so there's a great enlightenment from the quality qualitative aspect of the modeling of uh, systems thinking that goes into the quantitative part as well. I think quantification is um, an approximation and we do our best. Sometimes we have very good quantitative data to do that and sometimes we don't and we do have to rely on the qualitative um, information. But even the quantitative information that we have is in a sense a representative representation often of more qualitative aspects that we've represented as quantitative just so we can model them. What do you think systems modeling in particular can offer public health that is currently missing? That is a big question and a very good one and I think it does have much to offer and we can talk about maybe some of the barriers and later um, but the things that it can offer is putting together the evidence um, around a problem that might come from disparate disciplines. So that's one thing that it can do, sort of a synthesis of what's going on. Um, because our research tends to happen at different um, levels of analysis. So for example, if we took a problem like obesity, we might have you know, genetic factors that are related. We might have aspects of the microbiome. We might have aspects of um, people's behavior and the community, how it's, how it's um, got programs to either support or not support obesity, the food environment. Um, we might have aspects of policies. Um, there's a lot there. And to be able to just take one slice of literature or sort of, if you want to think about it, even um, meta-analysis and systems reviews um, often are just at one level. They're not really um, across multiple levels of a big problem. 
Um, so by putting those together in a systems model, we can understand their interrelationships. And um, that's one part of it is the, the understanding. The other part of it is we can actually see what a difference new research would make or a policy would make. So we can see where our gaps are in our evidence. That's, um, I've found that a lot of people, especially people new to modeling, will criticize the lack of evidence um, to build a model. But often policymakers are going to be faced with a decision. And even not making a decision is a form of a decision that's going to affect how people um, are affected by a, a lack of a policy. Say there was no decision to make a tobacco tax, that's going to keep people smoking longer, right? So even the lack of a decision is a decision of sorts. And the ability to figure out what evidence is missing and the value of it um, is something that, that modeling can do. Whereas that policymaker without the modeling hasn't systematically organized that evidence and really more goes with their gut about, I think this is the evidence I should be paying attention to. Not um, if you do the model correctly, we can figure out, okay, Here's um, the evidence that's missing, but it's not going to make that big a difference in what I'm interested in as an outcome, or it's going to make a huge difference. That's going to be a priority for research. That's another um, aspect of modern that modern can offer. Um, and, and then I'll just say one more. I'm sure there's more than what I can talk about right in this one answer, but I think a big thing for public health is that we want to often see what will happen with our interventions, and it's very hard to do for um, populations uh, to do randomized controlled experiments. Um, and even then, even if you could do them, they're, they're removed from the real world um, and all the influences of the, of the um, quote unquote real world. So I think what the modeling has to offer is sort of a in silico experimentation that we can take a model and run a one if, what if scenario. So we can say, what if we enacted this tax policy or what if we had this smoking ban um, and, and so on because it was um, about um, affecting people's public health from smoking or if it was a disease, um, cardiovascular disease or colic cancer I mentioned before. Um, what, what, what are the things that we could do um, intervention-wise and how long would it take to get an effect? I think that's the other thing that modeling is really good at that we often forget. We look at static snapshots instead of looking at a process that unfolds over time. And we found that there's um, often worse before better type scenarios where um, things might look worse right away, but then they get better um, with a certain policy. And if we understood that, um, then we might not pull off, pull away a policy when it was actually working. It just um, might, might have taken time. Um, by having these this virtual experimentation lab, it is so valuable. There's so much you can do with it. Another thing we can do is set reasonable goals. So if there's something we want to accomplish, we can figure out what would it take to get there. Often we set very lofty goals, and to set the goals, we often have relied in the past on um, who's doing a good job, what kind of a job are they doing, and then expecting others to do that same job. Um, and then without really knowing what it would take to get there. So I think by having the modeling, we can look at what resources you have and get to a reasonable goal with the resources you have, or if you have a goal that might go beyond the resources you have, that tells you what it would take in terms of what kind of actions you would need to move the needle on that task.
That's really interesting. So I wonder, you said um, there were some key challenges and I wonder whether you can say a little bit about the key challenges that you and your team have encountered in the application of system science to policy and planning processes. Well, I think there, there are several, but a couple that I can hit on are, first of all, the lack of understanding of what modeling is and um, how it can help. Um, and, and I'd say other system science approaches as well, um, because this is not being taught to us in school. I think there are efforts now to teach all the way down to kindergarten level. There's a few people doing that. Um, and we should be making people aware that our world is a system and that when you break apart a piece of it to study it, you, to really understand it, you need to then take that piece of evidence that you gathered when you did a reductionist method and pulled it apart and then do the complementary piece, which is take that evidence and put it back and then see how it looks with the rest of the evidence that you have around a, a given problem. Um, so I think the, the, that first challenge is helping people understand what modeling is. So who, who am I talking about that needs to understand you know, what modeling is and, and why, why we do it, what's useful for it? Because I think it's often seen in the research area. So the, the people being um, reviewers for journals, reviewers for um, grant um, study sections and other people who might be um, along the way, maybe the director of a research um, program or um, might not understand and support a colleague who's doing that kind of work because they don't understand it and they don't see the value because they weren't taught that method. So what can happen is a, a person who might want to pursue modeling and, and see the value of it might struggle with these kind of roadblocks along the way of the other people who don't, don't see it, don't understand what it's, what it's used for. And it's being, the modeling is often compared to randomized controlled trials, for example, or other um, experimental methods. Um, and saying things like, well, that was a virtual experiment. It wasn't a real experiment, so it's not real data. Without appreciating that this is a complementary method that can reveal things that are impossible to do in the real world. You can't randomize people um, to do something um, that might be harmful to them. You can't randomize people um, to a policy, then go backward in time and institute the policy brand new all over again. Um, so there are some key challenges in people's understanding of why we want to use modeling, what it's best for. Um, I think to get to that challenge, we really need the education piece. So that's, that's another challenge, right? So it's not just the journal reviewers and the grant reviewers and the um, other academics. It's the pipeline of who's coming up. And we need a, a cadre of people to implement, even if everyone understood and valued um, system science, we don't have enough people in public health doing it. Um, and part of that education process is establishing standards for what we should be teaching, and, um, how we should be teaching, what's included, um, that kind of thing. And maybe standards is a wrong word, it should maybe be guidelines or um, we should have a, a shared work. System science is made up of multiple disciplines. And, what we really need to do in, in public health, and we need to get all the people together working in the same direction. So right now we have a lot of scattered people working in public health, each in their own place. We don't really have a 
system science and public health society or organization or um, group of us working together to figure out these challenges for um, system science. And I think you could benefit from an international society of system science and public health to address um, those challenges. Another um, key challenge, I think, is one that I've mentioned before, which is um, the data. So system science can only work with, um, just like any other domain, you only use the data that's available unless you collect data anew. And um, in the kind of modeling that I do, I usually do the stakeholder groups. So that's one way to collect data. Um, and there's different ways to collect data from the stakeholder. Um, but often we rely on what's in the published literature and that's very, very appropriate. Um, but it may not always be enough. So I would just say, just like any other field, you struggle with having um, the right data available to the people at the right time. <laughs> so I think that's probably enough challenges for, for right now. Yeah, and you've st started to answer the question I had next. So how can we build capacity in complexity research? What what are the steps that you would take to to really make sure that we've got a, a pipeline of, uh, of keen researchers and a more general understanding of, uh, you know, what, what, what this method has to offer. I think you're doing a wonderful thing right here, uh, just bringing us together to have these kind of conversations and working across the Atlantic, across the globe. You've brought in researchers from other countries as well. And this is exactly what we need. We need to start having conversations um, with all the people who are doing public health complexity research around the globe. Um, another challenge that I didn't mention before was um, getting the ear of the policymakers. And I think um, we can do that better if we're coordinated and organized to share with each other how it's been successful um, in our own separate worlds and start to establish maybe some practices, some ways of doing that. Um, but it's also about establishing an official society to, to look after the, make sure there's a pipeline of the new researchers coming along, make sure there's funding, advocate for funding for this kind of research, demonstrate the value. One challenge in the, in the systems world to me as a relative newcomer seems to be that there are methodological silos where people have got strong preferences for for one method or the other i'll give you if you give you an optional question so what one one version of the question would be if you could only choose a single method for complexity informed research what would that be but you can also answer the question of why shouldn't there sort of be a a preferred single method and how can methods come together so over to you to decide how you want to answer this one so I think what has happened is that people have been grappling with complexity and figuring out how to address it from different fields for a while. And they've honed those methods and done a really good job. I'm not going to say there any of them are perfect, but I think that just being able to formalize methodology and train people in it is, is a wonderful start. This though creates a little bit of a problem when people um, look across and see that someone else is doing a method to address a complex problem and they think oh no, no no that's wrong because we don't do it that way 
and you're missing this piece over here. So your method's worse and ours is better. But I've always said that these are not, this is not a competition. This is a toolbox, right? System science is more or less an umbrella term to capture a variety of methods, all of which are useful. So if you ask a workman, which of those tools on your tool belt or in your toolbox is most useful? Is it the wrench? You only pick one. Is it the wrench? Is it the screwdriver? Is it the hammer? And that, is it the saw? And that person's going to say, well, it's going to depend on what I'm doing. If you're asking me to, you know, put up the lumber, I'm probably going to say I need the saw, you know, first, and then I'm going to need, um, maybe it's the screwdriver second and the hammer, then I'm going to need the wrench to, um, for a different job. I, so I, you know, I'm not obviously in construction, so I don't really know about anything more than the basic tools, but it's the same with system science. If each tool has its own function. Each one is very valuable for looking at complex problems, but they're not necessarily incompatible. And in fact, we can learn a lot by examining problems through different lenses and looking at what the information that can yield. Um, some types of modeling are better suited to some kinds of problems than others, but sometimes it just depends on how you frame that same problem. And with um, agent-based modeling, it gives you the ability to put behavior characteristics into your agents as if they were behaving like people. Of course, they're not people, and they don't really follow the rules of people, but they can exhibit some similar behaviors and be a representation. Um, we don't tend to do that with uh, compartmental or aggregate level modeling like system dynamics um, because it's not as practical um, for that. But I suppose if you really wanted to, you could um, do that. It's, it's, it's not designed exactly that way. What is often valuable is um, a couple of strategies. One is learning more than one system science methodology. And I would strongly encourage people to do that, even if people who want to end up practicing just a single one, it's useful to know what the other ones can and can't do. What, what are each one's strength um, and limitation? Because all of them have strengths and limitations. The other thing is you can try to do hybrid modeling. That's very valuable so that you can capture some aspects that make sense um, with the agent-based modeling, perhaps. Others with um, maybe there's um, a network aspect. Maybe there's a um, system dynamics aspect and they can be woven together. Now it takes a pretty advanced and knowledgeable um, person to do that well, um, but it can be done and is useful. We've done that in some of the modeling work that I've done right now. Another thing that's very useful about using different methods is um, doing some comparative modeling. And this has not been done a whole lot, I think because it's expensive. It's very expensive to fund multiple teams to look at the same problem in slightly different ways. But the value of that is that you can then understand which piece of the model that you constructed um, is contributing, where your, where your different models using different methodologies converge, you can be more confident that, that of that finding, right? Less uncertainty. And where they differ, you can try to understand where's that difference coming from. And then you understand more about the nuances of how you might be constructing the model and the assumptions that you might be making in the model. Um, so CISNET is a very good example of something that's been long running 
It's been a major investment of the National Cancer Institute. Um, it's called CISNET, CIS, NET, and the, the different modelers um, model the same problem with the same data using um, different um, assumptions and approaches, and it's been very successful. But it has cost the National Cancer Institute a lot of money. Another one was um, MIDAS. I don't think they constructed that one in quite the same way, modeling infectious disease agent study, which was National Institute, um, National Institutes of Health uh, funded um, study for many years on infectious disease. And that was run out of the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, General GMS. Um, so I think those are very useful. Um, we did one um, that I ran for five years called Envision, which was obesity modeling. And that one didn't have nearly the amount of investment as the other two that I mentioned. Um, but, and we also didn't have the, you might say, luxury because of the funding and the way the, this network of models was put together. We didn't have the luxury of having everyone do the same set of data um, and the same research questions. We just had a bunch of different people doing different models in obesity, but it was still useful, very useful to get people together. In fact, we had people who ended up using other people's models in their next model within a model, a model within a model, things like that. Um, very helpful to um, modelers to get together from different elks. Fascinating insights by someone who's clearly been doing this for a number of years. Thank you very much, Patty, for your time. This brings us to the end of this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Cypher or you want to subscribe to the future episodes of this podcast, go to cypher.ac.uk. Cypher is spelled with an S for sugar. You can also find out more about the work of the Social and Public Health Sciences Unit on our University of Glasgow website. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. Until then, goodbye.